Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. As we gear up for award season, there's no better time to join us. By becoming a Vanity Fair subscriber, you'll gain exclusive access to our in-depth coverage of film, television, and the best of Hollywood. And that's just the beginning. Vanity Fair takes you inside the worlds of entertainment, culture, politics, and scandal, bringing you iconic images, era-defining stories, and much more. Get 15% off a year of digital access to Vanity Fair by visiting VanityFair.com and using promo code POD15 at checkout. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a full year of insights and exclusive digital access. Subscribe now. Welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair and Panoply. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with the whole crew. We have our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello. Our film critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Oh, hi. Guys, it's been a while since we talked. Since last week, we recorded our episode uh, right as the Oscar nominations came out. And uh, (laughs) it's been a very slow week since then in the world of Oscars because a lot of people, I think, are taking well-deserved breaks. And then a totally crazy week in the news, as usual. So it feels like it's been much longer. We're going to catch up on a lot of things today, including Richard's trip to Sundance. And we have an interview that Mike did with Willem Dafoe, the star of The Florida Project, Oscar-nominated star of The Florida Project, that we'll share later on. Um, But we wanted to start just real quick with what has been going on in the Oscar race since then, since it's... It's quiet, but the Directors Guild Awards are this weekend. There's still a lot of conversations happening, even if no award shows. So, so Mike, what have you been keeping your eye on as this, in this apparently quiet period? Well, I'm really interested in Best Picture because I think there's a few interesting like subcurrents happening. So on the surface, if you look at Gold Derby right now, it's got Shape of Water in first place, which does make sense to me. Three Billboards in second place, Lady Bird in third place, and Get Out in fourth place. But one of the interesting things that I think is a disadvantage for Three Billboards, in addition to McDonough not getting the director, which is an obvious you know, an obvious indicator uh, for Best Picture is also that Shape of Water and Three Billboards are both Fox Searchlight. So they have the same team. And so they have people who are making spending decisions based on what they think they can win. And if you really think about it, Frances McDormand is extremely likely to win Best Actress, but they're not going to screw that up. They're going to spend on that. And then Sam Rockwell seems very well poised to win Best Supporting Actor, and they're not going to screw that up either. I actually kind of feel like there is an opportunity for Lady Bird and Get Out, both of which we've discussed have kind of a little more ground-level, passionate support. The Shape of Water support seems to be very industry, very kind of like you know, we admire this achievement, whereas Get Out in particular, I think now that it has performed as well as it as it has, has a lot of sort of people gunning for it, people pulling for it. And, and I think, you know, frankly, like people of color in the industry and in the academy, uh, you know, our colleague Anna Rea was the first to say this to me, but I think she's right. Like they're gunning for, for Get Out. They would love to see this happen. I think that, that we may be kind of missing the bigger picture if we're thinking three billboards 
Billboards is in second place. I, I almost think Three Billboards is like quickly going to be in fourth place if you think about this. A24 won last year with uh, Moonlight, so absolutely do not count them out. Like they've got Lady Bird, but you've got like a hungry group of people with money and with something to prove, not just people of color. There's a lot of people, you know, there's all kinds of people who love Get Out, would like to see it happen. Jason Blum is a very effective guy who's made a ton of money for Universal and has a lot of support of that studio and would love to pull basically a Ryan Murphy here and switch over from genre guy to Oscar guy. You know, they've got some very smart consultants in there. So I just think I, I just wanted to kind of talk about this as uh, in this kind of quiet period. I think it's interesting. I'd love to know what, what you guys think. Two things. One, I think that uh, something that also helps get out obviously is that it was a huge box office hit and yeah. like in terms of getting viewership excited about a movie winning like that would be a big boon for them but i think also and incredibly my- profitable like right. you know jason blum ex- excels in these like five million dollar movies so it was a hit that made a lot of people a lot of money it made a ton of money and and speaking of money when i was at sundance obviously most we, we were talking about the sundance movies but obviously the oscar nominations were coming out and we were talking about that and i heard on the ground and this is might not be true but this is what i heard is that for example uh sony pictures classics has kind of given up on chalamet winning and so they're not throwing a lot of money behind him for that campaign for him you know so so that's an example of at this point yeah they have people do have to look at their budgets and be like what is the most reasonable thing that could win and i think that if three billboards and shape of water are splitting that vote so to speak like they'll have to make a choice and i think you're right mike that they might just go with shape of water instead and and maybe that means three billboards falls by the wayside i don't know right i I would just imagine that fox searchlight look they're you know they're a friendly place they're gonna you know they're not going to totally ignore it but they're not going to be able to go all in and in fact if they don't go all in on shape of water that could really leave an opportunity for get out and ladybird because a24 and universal aren't worried about keeping two sets of people happy you know and i can tell you that people at the studios and people at the networks are worried about keeping their creative people happy like that's a big part of how this why this all happens the way it does well, with Shape of Water, they've also got a formidable Best Director contender in Guillermo del Toro. So that he seems pretty likely to win at the Directors Guild Awards this weekend. If he does win, I think he's kind of a lock. So they can campaign for him knowing that that's likely to pan out. And then that kind of acts as a Best Picture campaign, too. So it seems like they, they, they're definitely going to be chasing after that in this grander shape of things for Shape of Water than maybe with Three Billboards, which is more actor-focused. Yeah, it's almost, it's almost fortunate for Searchlight that McDonough didn't get nominated so that they can just go right. all in on, on Guillermo. Yeah. And I think Guillermo will, I mean, everyone expects Guillermo to win at this point. And I think you're right about Gary Oldman. And what I've heard is that Timothy Chalamet's people are now sort of looking ahead to next year where they've got Beautiful Boy coming out and thinking, well, maybe this is like, uh, it's great to be nominated and next year we really, really go for it. But what I don't think we're going to see, I could be wrong, and at one point I thought we might see it, is like a lot of crazy negative stuff going against Gary Oldman. I think some of that got kicked up and Gary Oldman's people, from what I understand, might have actually tamped it back down. And it feels like in this year when Harvey Weinstein has been exiled to Arizona and whatever the hell he's doing there, all of the people who learned at his feet are not particularly inclined to <laughs> replicate the world that he that he uh, brought into existence. I know. It's it's interesting that the big scandal, quote unquote, that's facing a frontrunner this past week was like a plagiarism uh, accusation levied at Shape of Water, which doesn't seem terribly convincing to me uh, upon reading it. So, I, but and also tepid in comparison to some of the other 
attacks. I mean, these might be unrelated, but whenever these claims get kicked up right now, you're always like, how can this not be unrelated to an Oscar campaign? So yeah, that feels like standard issue sort of oppo oppo research stuff. Exactly. With the preferential ballot, do we feel like this is a case where three billboards in Shape of Water might be a lot of people's number one and and Get Out might be a lot of people's number two? Do you know what I mean? And so then it does get that math benefit that we talked about last year in regards to Moonlight. Was Does it work that way if there's a split in the number one? Uh, would it work that way? Yeah, it can because they'll, you know, they'll then the number two becomes the number one or something. I mean, yeah, we need to we need to go back over this math. <laughs> yeah, we're we we're going to devote an entire hour long episode to just us figuring out math. But it's actually, yeah. I think, what's better for you is being the number two to movies that have no chance. That's what it is. Yeah. When they get yeah. eliminated yeah. as a contender, then you're then like if someone's number one is Call Me by Your Name, that's not going to yes. win. If someone's number one is Darkest Hour. Whatever is two on those ballots really benefits, yeah. right? Got it, yeah. got it. Okay. That's what it is. So, and I think but you that- can also imagine, um, like you know, get say get out Shape of Water and Three Billboards all get like a decent number of number ones, but not enough to win. And then you go to the number twos. You can imagine get out being number two on a lot of those ballots, but maybe if you didn't love Shape of Water, you might put it at your number nine. Like those those movies are kind of not. I wouldn't say Shape of Water is divisive, but they tend to have like super huge fans or not a fan at all. And Get Out seems more broadly admired. I think Shape of Water you can call it not divisive, but maybe polarizing. I mean, I certainly. I feel like I've talked in extremes about that. Either people loved it or didn't, or really didn't like it. So that, I feel that, the same way about three. Yeah, three billboards in Shape of Water are like love it or leave it movies, and then everyone likes Get Out, right? Most people like Get Out. However, <laughs> I would say I think that there's probably a contingent in the Academy who just don't think that a kind of popular horror movie that came out in early summer is a best picture movie, or not even summer. It was or, in, in the spring, right? Spring, like late yeah. spring, yeah. So, so that, and that's not necessarily, you know, like the kind of thing that people have about three billboards. It's more just sort of like, that's not quite right for us type of, type of thinking. So I do think it will, it will run into a headwind on that. And, and the passionate people who really want to see it happen, that's their main opposition, I feel like, in addition to the other movies. It's just like, is this really an Academy movie? Which is funny because Jason Zinneman wrote that piece in the Times saying they're both horror movies. Shape of Water and Get Out. Mm-hmm. But there's something yeah, oh, about yeah. Get Out that is more sort of signifies more as horror. Shape of Water is comforting in the end in a way that or like sort of emotional in a way that Get Out. I mean, Get Out is emotional at the end, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's darker. So we're talking about a darker thing. But, you know, as I wrote in our our first special issue of the magazine, All About Awards, you know, however many 26 years ago was it that a horror movie that came out in February, same as Get Out, won the big five in Silence of the Lambs. So there is precedent for it. Sure. It's just like, although, I mean, I guess Silence of the Lambs is, le- is more of a thriller, but whatever. You know, um, I think it could happen again. And I think that there's a weird world in which Get Out wins Best Picture and maybe doesn't win anything else. Before we continue talking about movies, I wanted to detour a tiny bit to television and just uh, talk for the first time on the show, I think, about the other podcast that Richard and Joanna are doing, which is all about American crime story, the assassination of Gianni Versace. Um, Joanna, maybe I'll let you take it away since you've been kind of the guide of this show. 
I know. I bullied poor Richard into doing this with me. Please help. <laughs> We're spending uh, every week talking about this this show that's airing over on FX because it seemed like, you know, it's a show that's based on a book by VF contributor Maureen Orth, sort of based on an article that she wrote in, for the magazine in the first place. So it seemed like a perfect marriage of TV and Vanity Fair. So, you know, Richard and I are having a good time, I think, or, you know, he's lying to me, uh, breaking down each episode of the show. Richard's in the sunken place. It's fine. <laughs> And then as I continue to stir my spoon in the cup very slowly, uh, we're also interviewing, you know, people associated with the show every week. So we spoke with Maureen, we spoke with Ricky Martin, you know, we spoke with Max Greenfield last week. And this week, we've got the great Judith Light, who actually has also appeared on Little Gold Men, and uh, who gives just an amazing performance in, in this one-off uh, appearance in an episode. And I could definitely see her being in Emmy's contention for, I mean, this qualifies as a guest appearance, right? Um, I would say. So just really jaw-droppingly incredible. And and like I the first time watching all the screeners that we got, because Rich and I, I think, have both seen up through the second to last episode. I liked the show but didn't like love, love, love the show. And then pouring back through the process of it all and getting to talk about it with Richard is really making me love it even more. And so I'm, I think we're hoping that it's a way in which people can digest this piece of pop culture with us. And like, if we can enhance your enjoyment or understanding of, of, what actually happened and where fact meets fiction. That's sort of what we're going for. Right, Richard? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting for me because I kind of got my start writing professionally doing like recaps and stuff like that. So really doing deep dives into each episode. And and then I really I gave that up because it was driving me insane. And, and now I kind of will review something and then move on. But it's been interesting to kind of get more gran- granular to slow down and kind of actually assess each episode kind of beat by beat. And at first I was, it seemed like a, a, a daunting task but I've, I'm enjoying it and I think you know hopefully listeners are too and and people should should download it if they're watching the show and and, and want you know some added value to that experience yeah so the episodes come out every week on Wednesdays after the episode airs and I do think this week's you know you would want to catch up a little bit on the story of Andrew and at least from the first two episodes but this week's episode with Judith Light is in, in some ways a standalone like I think the the show goes back in reverse chronology a lot of these you know this uh, this killing spree was somewhat episodic so it's a good one maybe to jump in on and see if you want to watch the show and um, just catch up with the magnificent Judith Light in the process. So we're going to get to talking to Richard about Sundance, but uh, very briefly, I felt like we needed to talk about Black Panther somehow because it is the one movie that everyone's talking about this week, even though it won't be out for several weeks. Um, the premiere in Los Angeles on Monday night had some of the most spectacular clothing you've ever seen in your life. I think the it was like a royal dress code and there was a purple carpet and people really brought it. And uh, Joanna, you've managed to actually see it, which is very exciting. I did. Uh, I was invited to that premiere, but I have like an allergy. <laughs> but I had better things to do. <laughs> no, I have like an allergy to any colored carpet, to be honest with you. So um, I decided to go to a sort of a more unassuming screening the next night. And, you know, it was still obviously packed with people, very thrilled and excited to see it. Oscar nominee Rachel Morrison, who was nominated for her work on Mudbound, uh, is the director of photography on Black Panther. And her name got an applause in the credits. Oh, that's awesome. Which that's I thought cool. was great like 
kind of more than anyone else, uh, which was kind of amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't talk about it too much because there's, you know, scary Marvel embargoes on it. But, you know, I was a little worried when I saw a lot of the hyperbole come out of the premiere screening on Monday because it, I was, it was giving me like Last Jedi acid flashbacks. And I was like, are we just going to have like another month of fighting about what critics think and what audiences actually think and all of that? So I, I went into the screening sort of quite nervous, like, will I actually enjoy it? Was that premiere a premiere high? all those ecstatic tweets, but I think it's a great film, a really, really great film, possibly one of Marvel's best, but I'm, I, I need a little more distance on that, but it's not just a great film that I think will please people who don't really care for Marvel that much, but I, I think it's also entertaining and silly enough in the ways that Marvel movies should be that the Marvel people will enjoy it too. You know, it's just an incredible cast a like visually dazzling thing and just like a real um this commitment that marvel has uh has expressed to telling different stories and then we all sort of roll our eyes and we're like yeah yeah sure they're so different uh this really does feel like a very different film i'm, I'm just really impressed with the way in which they obviously let ryan coogler uh you know who we enthused over uh when creed was in the oscar race do his thing and he did it. And I I really, I, I mean, I know it's going to do well at the box office, given advanced sales, but I hope it does even better than we're hoping. And that this is just an encouragement for the comic book genre to continue to be as weird and wonderful as it can be. So let me ask you this, because I feel like we've talked about this before. before. I am so bored out of my mind with the traditional like comic book creation myth thing that I really seriously do not ever need to see another one of those. So, but what I'm getting is that that's not what this is. This is like an inventive take and something different. Yeah, I mean, because they introduced Chadwick Boseman's character Black Panther in a previous Marvel movie, uh, Civil War. This is not an origin story. We're not sort of figuring out who he is. It is a little bit because he's going from prince to king. So we're seeing a coronation. We're seeing an ascendance to a role. But it's not the beat by beat. Oh, I have powers. Oh, what do I do with these powers? Oh, great responsibility. Oh, no. But he's not bitten by a radioactive Black Panther. <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, there's some tropes there, but they're tropes of all storytelling. So if you have like a dead king, a dead father, like that's, yeah, that's comic book, but it's also Hamlet and or the Lion King, whatever you want to say. Like, you know, it, if you have a, a jealous relative who also wants the throne, that's not, you know, that's not straight superhero. That's also Hamlet. So. Right. I mean, at the end of the day, there's only one story or three stories. It's just like the super. And they were all thing. written in ancient Greece, like, you know, thousands of years ago. Right. I know. I'm not asking for, like, you know, a complete radical no. you know, departure from all storytelling. It, and it's so especially far from a lot of the Marvel stuff that we've seen because even though Black Panther has appeared in a previous Marvel movie, and even though this world that we're introduced here, the fictional land of Wakanda, will be important in the Marvel movies going forward, it's not concerned about linking those two together right now. It's like, let's just pause and take a beat and really immerse you in this world. We meet so many new characters in the span of this film, played by Michael B. Jordan, Lupita Nyong'o, Letitia Wright, Denai Guerrera, Daniel Kaluuya, Sterling K. Brown, like all these people, I mean, an amazing cast and all these characters, and you feel like you know them. There's time for all of them, and that's uh, so rare because I think usually, or at its worst, a comic book movie can 
just be concerned with hopping from spectacle to spectacle. And this one is so immersed in character and emotion, which is just like surprising and welcome. I, the only other sort of awards related thing I will say, well, well, two things. One, I think Daniel Kaluuya's role was beefed up a little bit. Cause I remember when I was initially sort of trying to get Black Panther, some Black Panthers coverage going early on, um, I was sort of talking to Disney about Daniel Kaluuya and they're like, uh, don't lean too heavy on that. He's barely in the movie. He's actually kind of significantly in the movie and significantly placed on the poster. So I don't know, like, I can't help but think that that's a post, you know, Oscar buzz slash Oscar nomination uh, promotion for his role in the film. And that's great. And then uh, Ruth E. Carter is the costume designer. It feels early, but I cannot imagine anyone topping what she does in this movie. Uh, so I know it's so early. It's This movie's coming out in February. I know Get Us, an exception for movies that we talk about like so much later in the year. But I hope we don't forget Black Panther when it comes to nomination time next year because her stuff in this movie is incredible. So. And I don't think I've ever heard anyone say that about a Marvel movie for its costumes. I think, you know, they get nominated for visual effects from time to time. But having exceptional costumes, I think, says a lot for what you're saying about how this feels different from the rest of the franchises. I don't know. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch's cloak and Doctor Strange is pretty, pretty incredible. They've had some good stuff. I think you're right that maybe it's flown under the radar because people aren't looking for it, but it's just impossible to ignore in Black Panther. It's really amazing. I really hope this is not, this has not become a fight. I'm still tired from the last Jedi fight and I don't want to have another fight. I hope that everyone just goes and enjoys this movie or does it. And that's okay too, but let's not be silly and fight about it. (laughs) Joanna's worn out from the Jedi Wars. (laughs) I've seen things in the Jedi Wars. I lost my innocence. (laughs) We have extracted you from the mountains of Utah. Uh, you were there for three years, I believe. It was a, a really right. long Sundance this year. Yeah, it really was. You've written some great reviews on the site, uh, some really fascinating sounding movies coming out of this. Um, but I kind of wanted to start just big picture about the sense of what kind of year it was. And I think it's it's not overstating it to think that it was quiet in a way, if nothing because there just weren't those kind of huge sales that usually make headlines and get the rest of us at sea level to kind of start paying attention to what's going on there. Is, do I have that right? Well, a lot of people were calling it a quiet year, uh, and I think that a lot of them were referring to sales. Alison Wilmore, the great film critic at BuzzFeed, wrote a really great piece that went on the, that site uh, this week, which was kind of a deep dive into um, the feeling of the festival, which was that it was exciting that 37% of the films there were directed by women, which you know is still not where it should be, but much higher than it has been in the past. There were all, all these women's luncheons and talks and all this stuff, and, and so that was definitely the focus of the festival she kind of says you can't help but then draw a line between that and the fact that people were calling it a quieter festival you know that that this stuff you know women filmmakers are getting supported in this institutional way and yet that it doesn't exactly translate to sales or to you know buzz outside of park city so that was kind of an it was it cast an interesting mood over the whole festival and i think that it's maybe no better represented by the fact that i think the biggest buzziest you know, sort of most had to see, you know, must see movie at the festival, which was The Tale, uh, Jennifer Fox's film starring Laura Dern, deeply autobiographical about Fox's own experience as a uh, an early teenager. Went to HBO, right? Went to HBO. Yeah. And so after all that, 
you know, I kind of was like, oh, that'll that, that's going to be what I talk about Oscar-wise when I'm on the podcast or whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's ultimately a good thing because a lot more people will see it if it's yeah. on HBO. But, you know, it, it's a weird reflection of the fact that a lot of women's stories are relegated to television and, and are not, you know, trusted to be theatrical releases. Uh, and there were certain critics, I won't call them out by name, but who, you know, male critics who, when talking about the tale, which this is seismic infuriating fascinating experiment in cinematic form and storytelling referred to it as sort of an arty lifetime movie and it's like why because it's about a woman like you know so so as much as the festival admirably is trying to be better and trying to listen and trying to advance female filmmakers and you know female stories we're still pretty behind on on the reaction to those stories and to those films it seems like there remains this dated view that nothing can no amount of box office evidence can dislodge which is basically like you know men decide on the uh on what movie you go to when you go out and women kind of like rule the roost and so they control the tv all of which seems like potentially totally wrong uh not reflective of any of the changes that have happened over the past like 80 years let alone you know 20 years it's weird. Like why? But 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 on the other hand, I the one thing I can see is that basically non tentpole movies are dying, and so it's not an environment where people are, are where where most people are in a position to take risks. There's a few people like A twenty four and Neon who are like cool. Everyone else's insecurity and failure is our opportunity, but you know not that many. Yeah, you know, A24 came in with a hot movie that they already had, 8th grade, and I think that the fact that this was a a, a much more woman-focused year, female-focused year, dovetailed badly with the fact that last year, something like Patty Cakes went for however many millions of dollars and then completely flopped. Right. And obviously, Birth of a Nation happened the year prior. There have been some high-profile sales at the festival that then really did not pan out for Fox Searchlight and other distributors. And so there was a, you know, timidity on that. And and then also that just really combined poorly with the fact that these were not your maybe like your expected Sundance movies in certain ways, or in one particular way, as Allison mentioned in her BuzzFeed piece, which people should read, um, a kind of party line that was, I think, reported by Variety and other people was, was, was you know, unnamed people working in acquisitions saying, well, who are these movies for? And it's like, well, I mean, they're for 50 plus percent of the population and any other man who wants to see it too, you know, it's, um, but that thinking is still so creaky and, and people are, it makes them more risk averse than they already are at a festival like that. On the business side, you also had Netflix and Amazon who had been these powerhouses in years past and driving these crazy bidding wars who, by all accounts, had kind of bowed out. I mean, Amazon's film arm is really kind of having a, its own reckoning. Uh, you know, they paid Woody Allen this crazy amount of money. Roy Price is gone after sexual harassment. So it seems like that, having that kind of giant shark out of the waters really calmed things down, uh, which may be for the good in the long run, but made this year seem really muted. Netflix says it's focusing more on its own generated homegrown films is what they're saying. And bright too. And um, so that's what Netflix is doing. And then um, you're right about the Amazon thing. It's not just that they like paid for this. They they're in, in bed. Well, that's a terrible phrase. But they're in bed with Woody Allen for like three more films. That's their deal with him. So like they're stuck with this sort of, 
lame duck. And I don't know if it's more profitable for them to break ties with Woody Allen and just like, you know, give him a buyout or Grant and Barrett or whatever it is they're going to do. But it's a huge problem for them. And so I can understand why they would be skittish, you know, even as they had a big success with Manchester by the Sea, you know, like two years ago, like skittish. Yeah, skittish to do anything, you know, at all right now. And Netflix and Amazon both came to the festival with their prepackaged movies. So, you know, one of the opening night films uh, was The Return of Tamara Jenkins with a movie called Private Life with Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti. And that was already a Netflix movie. It's already coming out on the platform, uh, I think, in the fall. Uh, And Amazon had Don't Worry, He Won't Get Far in Foot, which Gus Van Sant directed with Joaquin Phoenix and Jonah Hill. So these are kind of awardsy movies, potentially, that were already owned by, you know, these these, um, streaming services. So, so yeah, they weren't really in the mood to acquire a lot there because they already had their kind of prestige things loaded. And Netflix, I'm sure, wants to be in the position like how did they come up with house of cards they like typed kevin spacey and a few other people in like an algorithm and it was like this will be popular they want to do that not gauge decisions based on like a bunch of people with festival fever and altitude lightheadedness you know in a room who are flattered to be in the in the room right so i could see that from objectively but on the other hand like didn't they acquire mudbound last year they didn't go in with mudbound no they they, they, yeah they they got they bought it there not got a bunch of nominations yeah and amazon with manchester so you know there's a there's a probably a limit to the kind of like algorithm theory that 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 they seem to be operating on but i but it didn't netflix like green light 80 movies or something like yeah it's so it's crazy (laughs) that's a lot of movies bright 72 is really going to crack the case (laughs) Richard, I wanted to ask about the Tamara Jenkins movie, which I believe you really liked, and I was really excited to see her come back since The Savages. But it being a Netflix movie and it being about these kind of unhappy New Yorkers just makes me think of the Meyerowitz stories, which was a Netflix release, which you know I saw and I liked, and I was glad it was on my television, but just had such a muted impact. It, it, I worry that the same thing could happen for something like this that is going to be on Netflix, but isn't going to be like, you know, here's a Will Smith movie on your Netflix platform, go watch it. I mean, I could fully see that movie just you know, fading into the morass of, of, of Netflix, um, which is sad because in particular, Catherine Hahn is really excellent in the movie. And she, you know, she's doing something similar to what we've seen her do before, whether it's on Transparent or in various other movies. And um, but she just really kind of brings it to another level. And and it would be fun if Catherine Hahn was in a sort of awards conversation next year or this this year, I guess. Um, and also there's a, a performance by an, a young young actress named Kaylee Carter, who's really great in it. It's a beautifully acted film. It's really in, it, it, it's it's it, you keep expecting it to do the kind of corny schmaltzy thing. And then it does something smarter and more insightful at every turn. And I think that's really appreciated, but it's so small and just about real people in the real world that I just worry that it will get kind of lost on Netflix. It's funny when I was reading Allison's piece on Buzzfeed, I was reminded and I had forgotten that, that savages, which is a great film picked up two Oscar nominations. And it, we just seem so far from a world where like Laura Linney gets an Oscar nomination for the savages. We just seem, we just seem so far from that kind of Oscar race, you know? Yeah. I mean, Mary, Mary J. Blige got the nomination for Mudbound being on Netflix. I mean, that's a really different kind of movie from The Savages, or it sounds like the new Tamara Jenkins movie. But the the idea of getting lost on Netflix, I worry about a little bit less after Mudbound. But I think if you're not like a big, splashy historical epic with a great story behind it, it does seem difficult. 
Yeah, and in the same way that the, that Ellen Page, Allison Janney movie, whose name is escaping me, disappeared on Netflix a couple of years ago, or there's precedent for this type to the bone, which is a movie I loved at Sundance last year that Netflix bought for I believe eight million dollars, which is an anorexia drama with Lily Collins, who's excellent in it, and some other great performances just kind of disappeared i think that unfortunately private life uh is is kind of a similar in scale so i worry that it'll not make a splash but but there was other stuff too that we can talk about if you want on this topic i feel like sundance started as a place to just sort of celebrate talent that couldn't you know or was trying to break its way into a, a bigger studio system right it became an acquisition market in tandem with the rise of like art house cinemas and indie film and all that stuff and harvey weinstein and harvey weinstein i guess and then it was morphing into oh well actually the future of all this stuff is streaming so that's what it's going to be from now on and if the stream as the streaming folks pivot and stuff it may be less of an acquisition market and more of i'm sure it's still a talent spotting market i'm sure that that netflix and amazon and everybody else are looking at i mean i hope that some of these these female filmmakers get tapped to make movies you know even if even if netflix thinks all right, I'm not going to be able to get anyone to watch this particular thing on our gigantic platform with infinite choice. Like this person's obviously talented. Let's let's find something that does make a little more sense. So I, 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 you know, that would be my only hope of optimism out of the whole thing. No, that's true. I mean, I think it still is definitely it's a great talent show, you know. And I was talking with Manola Dargis, of one of the film critics for the New York Times. At, toward the end of the festival, uh, and she was saying that she was kind of sick of how this festival is framed. And, you know, like it's looked at, you know, as an acquisitions market, it's looked at the, you know, and I was like, well, I'm guilty of that because I'm coming away with awards takes, you know, and, you know, we all kind of have to find our angle, unfortunately. And, you know, she she understood she wasn't, you know, scolding me or anything. But it got me kind of thinking about, well, how should we be framing this in yeah. in any sort of realistic way, you know, because like it, this is a business. It's and a this class- is- it is a classic thing where like the thing that back when it was growing was just destroying Sundance by commercializing it is now the thing we're all lamenting as it goes away. You know what I mean? It's right. just like, yeah. that's, that's how these things go. But, yeah. the, but we are in that phase of the cycle, it seems like. We, we are, yeah. Uh, Richard, you mentioned earlier about how A24 came with movies they already had, and I really want to hear you talk about Hereditary, the horror movie. The trailer is already online. I believe it has a release date in June. Um, and it got, I, I think you, I watched this play on Twitter where you were like, everyone's telling me I have to see this. I'm terrified. I guess <laughs> I have to see it anyway. And then you survived. And now you're quoted in the trailer. So it's a happy ending. I, sur- I survived and you know, I said in my little review that I wrote on my phone at the Mexican restaurant in Park City that uh, near the movie theater, you know, I've seen, I feel like I've seen scarier movies, but I think that, you know, just kind of in a visceral, you know, sense, but uh, Hereditary, uh, which is from a first time writer director is really interesting because like the Babadook before it or the witch to some extent, or, or it follows, there's this emotional kind of underpinning to it that really grips you. And so you feel maybe this, the, the, the scary stuff more profoundly but it's not, it's more of a sort of intellectual scariness than it is you know you know jump scares and stuff like that but you know it, and in amidst amidst all that tony collette just goes for broke and gives this crazy performance as a grieving daughter her the film opens with the death of her mom and then worse and worse things happen that like 
you know, June horror movie, uh, you know, normally we would say no, no, no awards chance. But look, Daniel Kaluuya's nominated for Get Out, and that came out even earlier in the year. Um, I, this movie does not have the, the social political relevance that Get Out does. It's more an interior sort of, you know, family horror. But still, you know, it was I it was a pleasure to watch, and it made me feel like okay, I need to maybe go back and like reassess some of these horror movies that I skipped because I'm too scared to see them. Uh, maybe maybe I can survive them if they're if they're artfully made. Well, and Tony Collette was nominated for The Sixth Sense, which was a horror movie that came out in the summer. I mean, it was, a, it was a different kind of phenomenon, but she's got some kind of track record there. That's true. So, yeah, she was kind of my outlier sort of awardsy, you know, choice. But, you know, there are others. And, and I think, you know, obviously the tale of the Laura Dern movie, um, she basically already won the Emmy if people, if people watch it. But there were other things, you know, obviously Catherine Hahn I mentioned. Maggie Gyllenhaal is great in a movie called The Kindergarten Teacher, which is a, um, a remake or an adaptation of an Israeli film where she plays a frustrated kindergarten teacher slash wannabe poet who gloms on to a child who she thinks has a kind of innate prodigy talent as a poet and things kind of go haywire from there. She's wonderful in that. And I could see in a very, you know, who knows what the rest of the year is going to look like, but she could be in there. And then another one that was a big splashy kind of more commercial hit at the festival, but kind of quickly fell out of the conversation for some reason, but I, I think shouldn't and, and will get talked about later in the year is Colette, which is a biopic um, from Wash Westmoreland who directed Still Alice that Julianne Moore won an Oscar for. And this movie stars Keira Knightley in a very charming, sprightly, smart role that, you know, I, I don't think that we should discount and we should certainly keep our eye on as the, the year unfolds. Again, I haven't really done the long view on what else is coming down the pike for Best Actress, but I would be surprised if Keira Knightley wasn't in that conversation. It feels so good to have her back. I mean, she was in The Imitation Game a few years ago, but that was such a, a small role. And it just feels like a long time since she's had a big, meaty part like that. Yeah, I mean, I think I s- said when I wrote about the film that, like, this is really feels like her first kind of big, you know, prestige lead since Anna Karenina, which was a long time ago. I'm ready to argue that it's that it's Kira's time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's let's get on that train really early and just start her FYC campaign now. Although that, Colette does have a distributor, right? Like we know it's coming out this year. Yeah, it got bought. I forget by whom, but yeah, it, it is. Yeah. So, Mike, now we're going to share the conversation you had with Willem Dafoe, who uh, I think he was, you know, two days off of his Oscar nomination for the Florida Project. He came into the studio and talked to you. Um, what did you guys talk about? Well, we talked about, you know, how he prepared for this role, how he pulled it off, his feelings about award season. And I have to I have to confess, I, you know, you guys know, sometimes I feel a little silly talking about Oscar so much, especially like all year round. It is a bit, you know, with all due respect to everyone involved, including our listeners, sometimes I'm <laughs> including like, this our is podcast. not really the most important <laughs> thing in the world. And so I think I brought that to the conversation because I respect him so much as a kind of like a heavy duty, serious actor. Obviously, he's done big, uh, big budget, you know, superhero movies as well and all kinds of things. But this is his third nomination. But I, I kind of went into it almost apologetically, like, sorry, we're talking about the Oscars. Let me tell you something. Willem Dafoe wants to win this Oscar. He uh, he is, like, all in for it. And I think that's great. He's not abashed in any way. Like, he's he's in this thing. I think he sees a path to uh, to getting it and to, you know, with all due respect to Sam Rockwell, 
And I, I just have to say, I love this movie. You know, it's it's directed by man. He he's the big nominee out of it, but it actually tells um, a, a really kind of fascinating and disturbing story of a mother and a daughter. That's what's really at the center of it. The kids in it are kind of amazing. We talked about that too. So I don't want to ruin it, but anyway, it was a, it was a real kind of an honor for me to to meet uh, Willem and get to talk to him and and talk about this movie that I love. So hopefully you guys will enjoy. Well, I'm honored to be here with Willem Dafoe, Oscar nominee in the Supporting Actor category this year for The Florida Project, one of my favorite movies of the year. Good. It's your third Supporting Actor nomination, previously nominated for Platoon and Shadow of the Vampire, and that puts you in three-time Supporting Actor nominee company of a few people that you might have heard of, like Al Pacino, Ed Harris, Tommy Lee Jones, Gene Hackman, Martin Landau, Philip Seymour Hoffman. These are people with like legit careers. These are good actors. I think of you as not only a movie actor, but I've seen you at the Wooster Group, and you're still you're a member of the Wooster Group right now. I am technically, but I haven't worked with him for many years. Mm-hmm. I was 27 years, and that's pretty much daily there. 27 yeah. years right. when I wasn't working on a movie, so it was a big part of my life. Yeah, I continue to work in the theater, but not with the Wooster Group. That's pretty experimental theater, right? I mean, you guys were doing yeah. In that in that word, almost you know, doesn't define much anymore. Right. But I started working there in 1977, and it was a group of people. We had a factory space, and uh, we'd go there every day to try to make theater pieces, and uh, we'd open our shows in progress. Sometimes we'd work with a writer. Sometimes we'd work with a text that was already there, and we'd play with it. Uh, We also used a lot of technology in very practical ways, not in glossy ways. You know, we made theater pieces, and it was a group of people that were there every day. That was our job. Yeah. And our bread and butter was international touring. In the beginning, we weren't very well regarded here. And then with time, kind of through success in other places, we were a little more accepted here. It continues. I no longer work there. Right, right. And it's changed a lot because when I started, I was like the youngest guy there. (laughs) And by the end, with the exception of the director, Elizabeth LeCompte, I was uh, the oldest. Right. Yeah. So now it's her and Kate Falk and uh, our younger crew. Right, right. And then you've made over 150 films, according to I don't know, about 150. At least over, you've made three-digit films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, (laughs) it's a lot of movies. And everything from from Spider-Man to something like The Florida Project, which, and I wonder, I really want to talk about The Florida Project because your performance is incredible. and And I wonder, you know, how theatrical is your approach to a, a movie like this or is it not? Because it feels to me akin to kind of, it's a kind of an experimental film in a, in a way, right? I mean, it's not a big Hollywood blockbuster. It's made for, I read, $2 million. Right. You know, Sean Baker is obviously an adventurous guy who is using technology like iPhones, at least, in, yes. in adventurous ways. Are there any connections between that and the kind of theatrical work you've done? Or is um, it really just a film of film? I think so. With the Worcester Group, there was always a kind of a, a non-professional aesthetic. There was kind of roughness and a kind of directness. I think that had a big impact on me. I mean, we were all performers. We didn't even call ourselves actors necessarily. We were actors, but you know, you get the idea. Yeah. We did things. We made things. When I do something like the Florida Project, you remake the process. You don't think of yourself as an actor. You think of yourself as a worker in 
this thing that we're making. And yeah. you contribute the way that you're supposed to contribute in your role. And in the Florida Project, it was very practical. I was a motel manager. It's almost like role play. And we go to a real working motel. And you bring some people in. You have these characters. There's a very strong script. You know you're going to do these scenes. But also you take advantage of certain opportunities that come. Yeah. So it's very loose. Yeah. It's, it's guerrilla filmmaking. Well, and that's what I was wondering. Is it... Obviously, there's a strong script that's that's setting up each scene, but yes. is it kind of like what we think of as curb your enthusiasm? Like, let, let's go into the scene and then, you know, we'll come up with the lines and feel it out a little bit. Are you imp improvising? I'd say more like you get the scene. And if it's tight or if it needs some loosening up, then you open it up a little bit. But yeah. a lot of the scenes were just, we were getting the scenes. And because it is a low budget movie, but still you're trying to make your days and you're keeping a structure because the script was very well structured where you're improvising things is you're inventing transitions you're inventing new scenes really more than anything else oh really okay yeah, yeah. so there's times when it's like well, what if this happened yes or there's some birds outside i love that scene right we yes. want to get them off the parking lot <laughs> willem go get them off the parking right. lot uh -huh. practical uh -huh. practical and did you have a backstory? Did you talk with Sean about a backstory for Bobby? Because I love this character and I and I love thinking about him. Where? How did he end up here? You know, that, mm. that I found myself really meditating on that. I, you know, I interviewed some guys, so I had kind of my own idea. But I always feel like you can't play backstory. It can guide you in certain choices mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. how a guy looks or how he talks. But you play the scenes. Because I think if you get too married to a backstory you want to pay it off so then right. you start showing rather than doing mm -hmm. you start saying well that guy's from texas so i want to show that so i wear cowboy boots and that can texture things but then you're pointing at stuff and i trust the basic material that i don't have to muck it up with interpretation i should have a more direct approach yeah now having said that Sean did feel like there was something missing about the contact of Bobby from the original script. So once we started working, he invented two very small scenes and uh, got Caleb Landry Jones to play my son. Yeah. Now, it's not very explicit, and the scenes are quite short, yeah. but they're quite, I think they're very important. They yeah. don't quite tell you where Bobby's from, but they give you a flavor that he's had his own disappointments. Right. They give you a flavor that he's got an estranged wife, you know? Yeah. You've got a f flavor that he takes care of people, but he doesn't have a very good relationship with his son. Right. So that all colors your understanding of him when you're seeing this world sometimes through his point of view. Right, and that he has some empathy for these people who are screwing up their lives and that he also maybe is going to try and do better by them than he did by his own family. Yep. Yeah. Yep, I think yeah. that's in the mix. And it's that's nothing that we sit down and talk about. Mm -hmm. You know, Sean just says, well, we, I want to do something. What if we had this other character come in? And they, they, those two scenes were very important. Those are great scenes. The, the moving the refrigerator scene, yep. and you just the, you can feel the sweat of <laughs> doing that in that humidity. And and uh, I, there's one line that I like particularly where where he says very casually, oh, I told mom that you said happy birthday. And I, my character gets like incensed. It's like, what did you do that for? Right. It's I like, didn't. go tell her I didn't. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That says a lot. Mm -hmm, It does. (laughs) (laughs) And how about working with, I mean, Caleb Landry Jones was in basically every movie last year, but (laughs) then, um, but then Bria Venate, am I saying her name? Uh, Venate. Venate, thank you. Okay. I never would have got that. And Brooklyn Prince as the mother and daughter who are just, you know, they just streak across the screen. Fantastic. And and have never really acted before, right? Uh, uh, Brooklyn has. Okay, but okay. She, she was six years old when she made this movie. <laughs> right. so, yes, you know yeah. she did some things, but uh, uh, Bria was found on Instagram because Sean Baker was following her, yeah. and really liked her sense of humor, liked her uh, force of personality, yeah. and he couldn't stop thinking about her for Haley. So yeah. originally, they thought maybe they'd go with like an A-list actress, and certainly the role is attractive enough mm-hmm. that they could have attracted an A-list actress, a well-known. But he stuck to his guns and uh, decided to go with uh, Bria once he worked with her a little bit and thought she could work. And I think she's fabulous in the movie. Yeah. Well, and it seems like it's all of a piece where the film is is partly about, obviously, like you said, there's a strong script and you are an incredible, accomplished actor, but there's also an aspect of the film that's kind of like, let's try and catch lightning in a bottle. That will be fun to watch, you know? And and, and certainly with the kids, it seems like that. Yeah, the kids lead it, really, because so much is seen from their point of view. They really set the tone. And Mm -hmm. because they don't have a certain kind of way of doing things or a craft or, you know, this is all new to them they have nothing to compare it to they're really fresh yeah so we use them to guide us yeah and and that's what i always felt it's like my job was to fit in my job was to be a good motel manager and fit in with these other people to disappear you know i mean forget that i'm an actor right i was just there to do some things and interact with people well and it comes off that way i mean the humility there's a humility to this character, right? Yeah. That he's just kind of like, let me try to mostly, yeah, fade into the background, do my job, stay out of it. But he keeps getting kind of sucked into their their lives and their dramas. Right. Because it's also, they're his tribe, you know? He lives there too. Yeah. He, yeah. He's maybe a couple paychecks ahead of them and maybe slightly more secure, but he's, he's from the same culture. Yeah. Now- you know, you have been nominated for not just the Oscar, but the Gotham Award, Golden Globe, uh, Screen Actors Guild Award. How has this whole, this this podcast, we talk about award season, not just right. about the movies, but about the weirdness of it. Okay. How much has all this stuff changed since Platoon or Shape of Vampire? A lot. Or at least a lot for me. <laughs> because in Platoon, you know, I was, I had made some movies, but my identity was still, I was this downtown actor, you know? Yeah. And I've said it many times, but uh, it was interesting when you think about it. I didn't even know when the announcements were made. Right. I really didn't. I didn't have a publicist. I had no, I didn't know what it meant, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, I really didn't. I mean, I knew it was a, an honor. But yeah, sure. <laughs> so uh, it, it, there was kind of an innocence a lot. Yeah. Or at least a lot for me. <laughs> because in Platoon, you know, I was, I had made some movies, but my identity was still, I was this downtown actor, you know? Yeah. And I've said it many times, but uh, it was interesting when you think about it. I didn't even know when the announcements were made. I really didn't. 
I didn't have a publicist. I had no, I didn't know what it meant, you know? <laughs> right. Uh, I really didn't. I mean, I knew it was a, an honor. But yeah, sure. So uh, there was kind of an, innoc an innocence. And also, I think once the value uh, uh, towards the distribution and the awareness, uh, the effect it has on the business that these films do, uh, that got more developed. So people uh, got more serious about um, anticipating these things. There's more uh, awards groups. Yeah. Uh, there's more dinners. There's more commentary. There's more prognostication. It's changed quite a bit. And then with Shadow of the Vampire, that time I did have a publicist. Right. I, I did. knew what time they were happening. I did know when they were happening. <laughs> I remember very well. I was going to work on Spider-Man. Yeah. I had an early call and I was at the studio, you know, yeah. when they were announced. Yeah. And is it fun at all? It is. I mean, you know, I work. I'm like a, I'm a worker and uh, I work in lots of different situations. So my sense of community is a little slippery. Yeah. Um, so I don't live in Los Angeles. I'm not in New York all the time. You live in Rome, right? As I well? live between Rome and New York. Okay. Do you, know, I, do you I hang out with George Clooney work. in Italy at all? Uh, he's or? up north. He's up to, okay, okay. I'm, I'm <laughs> down with the people. <laughs> he, he's with the Austrians. Right. <laughs> posing as Italians. Yeah. No, okay. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. <laughs> I like it, a little rivalry going on here. <laughs> no, no. There's, there's a, a, you know, a, a northern meridian uh, little thing that uh, gets played out of it. Well, just that you're you're a worker. I oh, mean, because all this stuff is kind well, of crazy. I mean, you wouldn't want to get sucked up in it, I assume. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, but it's just not my life. So when I do get in these uh, kind of industry things, it's fun for me. Yeah. yeah. Because I feel a part of the industry. Yeah. And uh, I see people socially. I feel a little more connected to this world. I don't feel like a lone gunslinger like I do sometimes when I'm, you know, making a film with Teo Angelopoulos, you know, uh, in Eastern Europe. Right. Or when I'm making a little down and dirty film with Abel in uh, Rome, with Abel Ferrara. Sure. You know, I'm engaged. I'm not complaining. But yeah. my sense of the world is very specific to those circumstances. And I don't feel a connection to the the bigger world or an industry. But when I get um, in in this kind of context, I, it, it feels good. That's good. That makes me feel good. Because sometimes I feel like ridiculous and with like a kind of a serious so, actor like you, I'm glad you're enjoying the, the, no, the ride. I, you know what? You know what? I feel ridiculous sometimes too. You know, that's, sometimes that's you go it. on talk shows and they have you do goofy skits and I think, well, would Daniel Day-Lewis do this? <laughs> And the truth is, I don't know, yeah. but I know I'm good with it. <laughs> you know, <That's> good. <laughs> I mean, I think in a similar way, you know, it's a way to be, you know, to be a certain kind of sense of fixed sense of who you are that kind of limits what you can do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I, I like switching my circumstance and uh, I, I just think in a different way when I'm in this uh, situation. Well, you do range, you know, we just kind of mentioned a little bit, but you do range very widely the kind of projects that you do. Um, but you've For done better and for worse. Yeah. 
<laughs> no, I'm serious. But so many great projects. I mean, how do you, do you have a process for choosing what to work on? Very much. What interests me? Yeah. I want to be in the room with interesting people and I want to challenge, you know, and it's a little bit of a cliche to say, oh, I always need to be scared, but it's true. I, I don't do well when I say, oh, this would be fantastic. I know exactly what this is and I, wow, I could knock it out of the park. I don't think like that. Right. I really don't. I think, huh, this is interesting. Oh, could I do this? Mm, I'm not sure. Uh, would it be interesting to see if I can, uh, I'm able to do it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, let's see who's going to be there. Okay. Hmm. Do I like this guy's movies? Do I like her movies? You know, yeah. all that's going on. How did that work with, with Sean and with Sean, Project? Uh, Sean, I had my eye out for him, you yeah. know. Uh, did you uh, see Tangerine? I did, I did. Yeah. And his other films I hadn't seen then. Yeah, so I had, I, when I heard he was uh, looking for someone for this uh, project, I asked to see a script, and then immediately I really responded to the script, and uh, he ran to New York, and uh, we met, and it was love at first sight. <laughs> That's great. I'm, well, I'm glad it was. I'm no, glad he's, it out. He's, he's special. Yeah. And I, yeah. I like how he works, and he's a very uh, principled, very, um, he's, he's tenacious and tough in his work ethic, but he's very sweet and and kind and thoughtful in his approach to people. Yeah, which was of course very important when you know working with kids and working with people that aren't used to performing because when they're relaxed they can be really fresh and really open to pretending and they yeah. can just do things in a very direct, you know, full authentic way. But if you get them nervous or if you get them you know, mm -hmm. self-conscious, then that all disappears very quickly. Mm -hmm. So his kindness was part of capturing these people being in this environment. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, you can really see these kids are just cutting loose uh, and, and going running wild, but in a joyful way. That's sort of the, the one of the great pleasures of the film. It's true. Now, we were kind of lamenting on our Oscar, you know, nominations thing that, that the film was not nominated for Best Picture. Me too. And I saw that he that he tweeted out in a very gracious way, you he's know, gracious. To, to you and to everybody else. But what what do you think? How is he with that? Do you think he's all right with that? I mean, clearly he's going you know places, this guy. He's got a lot of talent and supporters. Well, yes. And he'll continue probably to make these kinds of movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't think he's going to run out and make it. $60 million movie. He's not going to do like Wolverine 17 or whatever. I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I'd never say never. <laughs> but, uh... And, um, you know, another thing about award season that, that is interesting to me is the controversies that sometimes are like uh, Tempest in a teapot. But it's an interesting thing because it's a kind of a... One of the ways I think about it is it's like the Super Bowl for quality movies, you know? And so people get heated and they start to kind of dig in on their favorites and start to throw stuff at other people's unfavorites. And, you know, uh, Three Billboards has been going through this kind of, you know, critical assessment in, in relation to its handling of race and all this other stuff. But I wanted to ask you about Last Temptation of Christ because, because that was an incredible film, but one of the early in my life examples of just a film being completely overwhelmed by the controversy around it. I mean, what do you remember from that from that time? And did you get sucked into that yourself? Well, you know, it's a film that was very important to me. It was yeah. a really good experience, and I think it's a very good movie. So I it broke my heart 
when this uh, controversy happened because yeah. it did hurt the movie. Yeah. It, it was eclipsed. And, and just practically speaking, it uh, limited distribution on the movie. Wow. So people yeah. really didn't see it. Some people said, oh, the controversy will, you know, will create business. It wasn't true. It right. created a negative feeling about the movie. Regardless, even if you, I don't know, it, there was a cloud around it. So people yeah. couldn't see it clearly. So and in, now in, it's so clear that it, it falls into a continuum in Martin Scorsese's filmmaking career as a Catholic who is thoughtful Catholic. But at the time, it was just treated as this, oh, it's a sacrilegious thing. Yeah, I think, you know, that was a very particular time politically for the religious right. And yeah. they kind of rallied around this. This was a designated point, you know, to establish their battle cry. Yeah. It really wasn't specific to the movie. Yeah. Because when you think that same year, I'm sure there were m movies that if they really thought about it, they could be much more offended by. Right. I'm sure. Yeah. So, you know, slasher movies. Right. Somebody, you know. <laughs> well, I hope people at home who haven't watched it will watch it. Also, one of the single greatest uh, scores in history by Peter score. Gabriel, which I inspired all the time. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. Um, how do you stay in such good shape? Are you well, like a workout guy? What's there? I'm not a workout guy, <laughs> but I'm, I've been a uh, asana, a yoga asana practitioner oh, okay. for many, many years daily. Yeah. Daily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, that's the first two hours of my day. You know, really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. And then you've got five movies in 2017, and you have like <laughs> okay. another three or something. Yeah. Up. Okay. I want to ask you about two. First of all, Aquaman. Yeah. And you're playing Nudis Volko. Am I getting yeah. that right? So uh, Nudis is good. Nudis. Okay. <laughs> he's a mentor. You know, he's a mentor to Aquaman. Oh, okay. And he's also an advisor to the king. And do you enjoy doing the comic book movies? I mean, Spider-Man obviously is a big... I mean, how, did that change your your career, your the way that you're seen on well, the street and stuff? Absolutely. It was the most widely seen movie of my career. Yeah. Probably more people saw Spider-Man than, you know, 30 of my other movies, to tell you the truth. Yeah. And, you know, I like that movie. And it was yeah. a great it's experience. It's really good. And it, it probably even holds up. I mean, mm -hmm. I love I love the double role. I love the fact that it... it really easily glides between comedy and drama mm -hmm. even sometimes in the same scene mm -hmm. the father role you know people in their memory remember you know the goblin and flying around but the really beautiful part is the father role yeah there's a lot of um good comedy in that if you ask me yeah and do you watch those kinds of movies on your own for fun um i do sometimes but like did you see have you seen the avengers or guardians of the galaxy you know, I watch all kinds of movies. Okay. <laughs> Fair. I tend to like, you know, uh, personal movies. And the the trick about, you know, some of these tentpole movies is sometimes they lose the human element or they lose right. contact. And, you know, they're great because they can make these huge muscular effects and do these fantastical things. And that's why they work, I think, in, in worldwide distribution. Yeah. But sometimes... There's too many set pieces, and it gets repetitive. It gets too noisy. So there's always a line to walk. Mm -hmm. One of the nice things about Spider-Man is it was rooted by the characters and rooted by the story. Yeah, yeah. And you had a great director and a great cast. So Yeah. yeah. And then did Julian Schnabel, Vincent Van Gogh movie, this is, this is happening? Yeah, it's okay. happened. It's yeah. happened. It's in the can. 
He's uh, I mean, cutting it Asgard right now. is one of my favorite movies of all time. So for Schnabel to come back and do an art movie, that's good. He always makes art movies. Yeah, well, his right, movies a movie are about art. an artist, let's put it that way. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Actually, you're always, right. So he, he does, does that too. <laughs> he does. He really does. When yeah. you think uh, mm-hmm. Ronaldo Arenas and uh, it's, true. it's not really Diving Bell and the Butterfly or Morale. I've got high hopes for it. I mean, it was a great shoot. Beautiful script written by him and Jean-Claude Carrier. It was just a great experience, shot in a lot of the actual locations. Yeah. Uh, it's it's not a biopic in the traditional sense. It's really more about painting, more about nature, more about an artist's relationship to spiritual things. And then the ear-cutting scene? Ear-cut? Can uh, you tell us? I don't know what to tell you. Um, <laughs> it's fine. We'll wait and see. We don't we'll dodge it. Okay. <laughs> But it's not about that, you know? Did you go to Disney World when you were making uh, Florida Project? I didn't. I didn't have time. I was busy yeah. being yeah. a motel manager. Did you have any weird, like, Florida man experiences when you were in Florida? I am just... Florida man. No, <laughs> I, not so much. You know, I know Florida because part of my family moved down to Orlando. Oh, okay. My parents retired down there. Because you're from Wisconsin, they both right? Passed. Yeah. Okay. Snowbirds, you know? Yeah. Gets too cold when you're... In your 90s. Suddenly I thought you must be from New Jersey because that's everyone I, it, my family moves to Florida. That's no, like okay. Move. Okay. Uh, well, Wisconsin. there's a lot of room there in Florida. How is your family uh, feeling about Trump? Because Wisconsin was a key, uh, was a key uh, You know, thing. they've been away from Wisconsin for a long time. My parents are both dead, so I don't know how they feel about it. Right. But right. my family's kind of split politically yeah. and they, they're split all over the country. But I don't think they're... Trump supporters. Well, they're all they all know who to be rooting for in the Oscar race. So that, that's all that matters. That much I know. That much I know. <laughs> all right. Well, Willem, thank you so much okay. for taking time sure. to talk with us sure. today. All right. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thanks as always for listening. And please take the time to give us a review on Apple Podcasts. We love finding new listeners and we love hearing from you guys, uh, whether you're reading our work at VanityFair.com or tweeting at us at Little Gold Men. And you can find us all on our own there too. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. And Richard. I'm at Rylaws. And I just wanted to add on a personal note, uh, next Tuesday, February 6th, a book that I wrote called All We Can Do Is Wait. It's a young adult novel, but it's for everybody. Uh, will be available in stores. You can pre-order it now. I realize this is a cheesy plug at the end of the episode, but uh, I'm excited about it. And, uh, you know, I hope that people will read it if you're a fan of me and my writing. It's more It's of great. Everyone yeah. should read it. So uh, Yeah. So once you've, once you've read Richard's book, only then are you allowed to listen to next week's episode. If you uh, don't read it, we will spoil the rest of the Phantom Thread. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth. And this week's award for the best description of Donald Trump halfway through his State of the Union address goes to Richard Lawson. At first, it seemed like a, a daunting task, but I've, I'm enjoying it.